Dear brothers and sisters, God bless you. This is John Dupuy, and I'm very honored and excited to offer this two-part conversation with my friend and colleague, Steve McIntosh. He is an extraordinary philosopher of great depth and erudition. His recent book, Developmental Politics, shows that there not only is light at the end of the tunnel, but there's light in the tunnel, and we can do better and we can heal our wounds and our divisions, and we can evolve to something that is more functional, more helpful, more beautiful, and more inspiring. And that's what we're talking about, and that's what Steve's work has been about for the last few years. So listen to this man and open your heart and weep, because it's good stuff at the time we need it the most. God bless. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit. Life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm, as always, John Dupuy, and that is Dr. Roger Walsh, who is my co-presenter here, or co-host. And this good-looking man in the purple shirt is Steve McIntosh. Steve is one of the major thinkers and philosophers that has emerged out of the whole integral thing. And if you don't know what the integral thing is, and this is your first time, just bear with us. And Roger and I have talked about doing a, a podcast called part of this called what the hell is integral just to inform everyone so if we get in sounds jargon or you don't know what we're talking about refer to that or other sources to explain integral theory on the internet so we may just get into it and start you know we don't know how it's going to go but i imagine we would so integral is something that bears studying and steve is one of the true lights that has emerged out of this movement out of this uprising of consciousness as is roger and so it's very exciting to have, for me, to have both of you here to engage in this conversation. The latest book that Steve has produced is called Developmental Politics. The state of the world and the state of my country politically is something that I deeply grieve and feel great pain. I can kinesthetically feel the divisions and hurt in our country. And in Integral, there was kind of a vague idea that maybe this could help heal us and stitch us back together but Steve, you took this issue and you wrote a book of great wisdom and you're an extraordinary writer. I mean, you're, you're obviously you're, you're a deeply philosophical writer who knows classic philosophy, but you write in a way that is very clear and very concise. And this book could be this thick, but you made it short and to the point. And I really admire your writing and the ideas that you're presenting here. And I turned Roger onto it and I bought this book multiple times and I keep giving it away. So you guys got to get the book, okay? Read it and give it away. And uh, in fact, we have the mayor coming to lunch with us for whatever reason. And my last copy is going to the mayor today. So I'll be ordering more multiple copies. Bless you. Yeah. So welcome, Steve. And thank you. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world and pointing a way that offers us hope. And not only hope, but a methodology of how to get there. Thank you. Thank you, John. It's an honor to be with you and Roger and to talk about these exciting developments in our mutual worldview, I could say, 
the emerging worldview that brings us together. So I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. Yeah, and I would say by way of introduction that John's right. He gets credit for telling me about your book. And I've devoured it twice now and just am very excited by it. And to provide a little context, my day job is as a professor of psychiatry. For me, one of the, the most exciting discoveries in psychological sciences over the last 50 years is that adult development, the develop, psychological development and maturation can continue throughout adulthood. The mind doesn't have to stop growing when the body stops growing. And that is a revolutionary discovery. It points to potentials and capacities that are latently available to all of us. And points to the idea that what we take as normality is not the ceiling of development. It's more and more like a collective form of developmental arrest. And it just reshapes our concepts and vision of what's possible. That's beginning to emerge as a very, very important idea in psychology and mental health. But only very recently with your work is it being applied to politics and culture. And so I was very excited to read your book and see that you were presenting a framework for seeing how we can understand so much of the challenges and pain and conflict in our society and in the world through a developmental lens and just illuminate some of these conflicts and, and make sense of them in a way that we haven't been able to so far. And by that, point to ways out, so for ways through. So it's a beautiful contribution. I, too, uh, like John, love your book, Developmental Politics, and we'd just love to hear whatever way you think would most effectively bring us into a discussion of this topic. And let me ask one question before you get going, Steve, is I'm really interested in how you came to write this book. Now, some, some of the ideas are foreshadowed in your earlier books, which I've read, but was it you know, a flash in the night through a dream, or Ken once said in a conversation that he didn't write books to tell people what he knew, but to find out what he needed to know. So did this develop in the process of writing it, or, or how did this come to be? Sure. Well, the story wouldn't be complete unless, it, because it's kind of been the culmination of a, of a lifetime in some ways. I hope to write other books eventually, but it's been decades in the making. We could say it that way. The basic thesis is that our society has been disrupted by cultural evolution, by growth, and that there is a way forward through further growth, right? The growth that has differentiated us, that stretched us out to the point where America is a bitterly divided society, not just left and right, but you know, within the left and the right, that, that those forces of cultural and, and the evolution of consciousness and culture have not finished with us the turmoil and uh, negative life conditions that we face at this time in history in 2021, that these can be viewed from a positive perspective as being ripe for further development, that, that, that these problematic life conditions are in some ways the perfect life conditions for the emergence of this next great phase of human history, which is beginning to appear on the horizon, right? So we can get into what this worldview is, how it affects politics, but to try to answer your first question, I guess when I was 12 years old, I felt a sense of calling. That is, I, had, I was born in 1960, the 60s were going on, I grew up in Los Angeles, it was very exciting, I wanted to be a hippie, but I was too young. And so I felt as though there had been a, a kind of a renaissance, which I was, you know, sort of left out of. And so I wanted to embrace that as soon as I could. 
But I sensed that there was something more to come, that the revolution of the 60s was not the only potential renaissance. And I I don't want to attribute too much prescience to myself back at 12 years old, but this sense of of cultural emergence, of of renaissance, of positive evolution, that that was something that, that I felt deeply called to at an early age. And so much of my study was at the time in the 70s, what was really fresh and emerging was what I now call, or what many of us call, progressive spirituality, right? I guess a, a derogatory term might be new age spirituality, but I was not raised in any religious tradition. So I was hungry for spirituality as a young man and, and began searching for it eclectically. The, the elements which were most intriguing to me were the intersection of science and spirituality. That seemed to be where there was some really new truth emerging. And so I continued to pursue progressive spirituality throughout the 70s. But then by about 79, I realized that I wanted to try to make an impact on society and that I needed some credentials. I couldn't just be a counterculturalist. So I went to study entrepreneurship you know, in an undergraduate business school, and that led me to law school, uh, again, to establish my credentials and allow myself to become a player you know, in society and, and entrepreneurial. I had a sense that that would come in handy later. Then in the 90s, I guess it's fair to say that I've had a a variety of of spiritual awakenings in my life. But in 94, I had a pretty big one, and I felt this sense of being called to participate in some kind of renaissance of pulling me back. And I decided that I was, my study of history had shown me that many of these periods of cultural fluorescence were marked by art movements, which kind of captured the essence or the aesthetic, right? So, I mean, in the 60s, you know, even the 60s music was a big part of the emergence. And even in the Enlightenment, right, we could point to classical music as sort of proof of concept of an emerging new perspective. So, in the 90s, here, especially here in Boulder, where I had moved in 1990, Boulder, Colorado, there really was a, a palpable sense of spiritual renaissance. That's what we refer to it as. And so I felt that, that I could participate in that by helping to intuit and express the tenets of this emerging spiritual renaissance art movement. And so I founded a company to create what we, t- we termed cultural artifacts of the spiritual renaissance. And while the art movement that I was trying to intuit didn't quite emerge as I had hoped, the company was, <laughs> went pretty well. By the end of the 90s, I began to be disappointed with this, the spiritual renaissance that wasn't quite maturing, right? That progressive spirituality seemed in many ways to, to not live up to its promise, that it had been taken over by excessive magical thinking and commercialism. And so I was a little bit, I had a sense of uh, disappointment and even a degree of disgust with progressive spirituality. And it was around that time, around 1999, that I discovered the book Spiral Dynamics. And so I had read Teilhard de Chardin in the 80s. I had read a couple of Ken Wilber books, but didn't quite connect thoroughly. During the 90s, we all had a sense that something was emerging, but, but progressive spirituality didn't seem to be the right definition. And so in 1995, when the Institute for Noetic Sciences published Paul Ray's sociology survey, which identified three major worldviews, the traditionals, the moderns, and what he called the cultural creatives, that was big news here in Boulder. We all said, the culture creatives, that's who we are. That's what this is about. But yet even that seemed to glorify the cultural creatives. It wasn't intellectually rigorous enough. It was too much of a sales job, it seemed to me. So then when I discovered 
you know, the work of Claire Graves is popularized by the book Spiral Dynamics. I thought, wow, now here's a description of this worldview, this cultural creative worldview that illuminates both how I'm and why I don't feel comfortable in this culture, why it feels like there's something more, something next beyond this. And it was after that, in 2000, after um, getting into Spiral Dynamics, that I was invited to join the Interval Institute in 2000 and participated in a couple of the groups, the uh, Interval Art Group and the Interval Business Group in the early 2000s. But then I realized that I had my own contribution to make to this and that it would be that, that in some ways, while I admired Ken Wilber, I couldn't really, I, I wasn't really prepared to become a Wilberian or like I couldn't just follow him because I had some, I had some ideas of my own. I had some ways in which I differed from his thinking. So I definitely have benefited significantly from Wilbur's thinking. And when I get it right, hopefully I'm standing on his shoulders, but at the same time, I, you know, I'm not a Wilberian. And so I realized that I had a contribution to make that was independent of the, the Ken Wilbur social hold on, I guess you could say. And so I began working on that book. My first draft was too academic. Even my mother couldn't read it. <laughs> I realized I've got to try to simplify this. So I, I did my very best to make the, at least part one of my first book accessible, an accessible description of this emerging worldview that wasn't completely following everything that Ken Wilber had written about it. And that was that book that came out in 2007, Integral Consciousness and the Future of Evolution. And at that point, I realized that this was my calling, that this was the next renaissance that I had in some ways been unconsciously preparing for my entire life. So I, in some ways, I was ruined as a business person, even though my business was going strong and I was the CEO of the business, I realized that, that I had to make a go of trying to contribute to integral philosophy and that this was my, my true life's calling. So I've been working on that ever since, but let me you know, I mean, there, there's a second part of the story, but let me just stop there. So I'm not just talking a blue streak here. Well, one thing you, you mentioned is that when you were 12 years old, you know, you had this feeling in this sense of vocation or calling. And that's often with men, at least with men, that often we get it about that age. We get a foreshadowing or an insight that, or something, a dream, an experience. So I find that really interesting. And it certainly worked because you have emerged as a prophetic voice. Well, thank you. So just to bring the story up to the current moment, trying to figure out how I could make the most meaningful contribution to the emergence of this post-progressive worldview, as we're calling it now, the, the next book that I was called around, I, I did a, a kind of a vision quest assisted by hefty doses of psychedelics. And I got a, a, an insight that part of this new truth that is what was powering the emergence in history was new truth coming online and, and that this new truth could be scaled to just two words. And that is consciousness evolves. Even though that's obvious, the culture, our time in history, we don't understand this profound truth as thoroughly as we would do well to do, especially given our problems. And in some ways we could say that every problem is a problem of consciousness, at least partially. So this was this kind of led to my to my 2012 book Evolution's Purpose which was again exploring this intersection of science and spirituality but when that book came out I realized that the place where this new truth could be applied most beneficially where the leading edge of potential applications was in politics 
part of this came from seeing how climate change, for example, through the work of Al Gore and his Inconvenient Truth movie, there was quite a lot of building political will to address climate change in, in a serious way. But then around 2010 or 2011, there was a, a group of well-funded boutique startup think tanks funded by forces on the right which did an excellent job of decreasing support for climate change by like 20 points. I mean, there was a, a frontline uh, documentary at the time called Climate of Doubt, which documented how these little think tanks had sowed doubt about climate change. I mean, you know, we can't put it all on them. I mean, they were telling people what they wanted to hear in some ways, but these little think tanks had a huge impact negatively on political will for, to combat climate change. And so we thought, well, geez, look at these boutique think tanks. We should create our own boutique think tank to try to counter these efforts and try to help people appreciate climate change, yet again, from a post-progressive perspective. So in 2012, myself and uh, Carter Phipps, we co-founded the Institute for Cultural Evolution with an eye toward influencing American politics with the new truth of interval philosophy. We worked for over several years developing the think tank, building our board of directors, getting support. We held a variety of conclaves, sort of elite gatherings of influencers. We held a couple at Esalen. We worked with the board of directors of Esalen to, to try to uh, impact polarization. And we had many luminaries like Jonathan Haidt and Margaret Hoover and from people from the left and the right join our conclaves. And it, it served as our own kind of political education, seeing kind of the lay of the land and, and who was concerned about climate change, who was concerned about polarization. But then by 20, late 2013, we began to realize that the problem that we were focusing on, climate change, which is still a, a significant concern of ours, that ultimately the thing that was blocking more concerted national action on the issue was hyperpolarization. The, the stretching out, as I mentioned at the beginning, this sort of ways in which these worldviews that used to have a, at least a cultural truce, that these factions of the society are, are really flying apart in many ways. And so we realized that, that we needed to focus the, the emphasis of the think tank on hyperpolarization, working on overcoming polarization. And so we continue to work on that until about 2016. And then in the, the summer of 2016, we realized that we had a lot of political experience, we had a lot of thinking, but we needed to put a stake in the ground regarding what our thinking was, that just having a website or putting on conclaves or writing white papers or op-eds, that wasn't going to get the job done. We needed a book. And what really spurred me to try to undertake this book was that one of our board members, John Mackey, CEO of Whole Foods, suggested that he and I and Carter Phipps write a book together and that, of course, was exciting because with Mackey's reputation, we could get a much bigger book deal, get much more um, publicity, et cetera. So we started working on that book and I dove into political philosophy. I had read a lot of political philosophy, but I started to digest it more deeply, read it more widely and consider it more thoroughly than I had in the past. And by about April of 2017, it became evident that our attempts to sell a kind of a mainstream you know, New York published political book, that that was not coming to pass, that the big publishers were not interested in what we had to say about politics. They were interested in what John Mackey had to say about leadership. Leadership is this insatiable category in publishing, even though there's probably a hundred leadership books published, you know, a day. Nevertheless, that this is a, a safe category that the New York publishers were interested in. And so we realized we needed to shift gears and that the, the book that I would eventually co-author with John Mackey and Carter Phipps would be about uh, business leadership and in some ways a sequel 
to John Mackey's 2013 book, Conscious Capitalism. So that book continued to develop. But in the meantime, I had all this, I had this big head of steam for a political book that I was extremely excited about. And I realized that I had to write this book on my own. So throughout 2017, 2018, 2019, <laughs> it's a short book, but it took a lot of time to write. I produced the manuscript, was able to get a small publisher to publish it. And that book came out perfectly timed for the pandemic, March 1st, 2020. And so, you know, that was a challenge to overcome. But since the book has come out, we've attracted a lot more support to our think tank, the Institute for Cultural Evolution, um, which now has a significantly larger budget. We've hired a, a very capable executive director to help build out all of the programs that we are initiating in the think tank. And after the book was published in 2020, in some ways, I'm sure Roger knows that you don't really know what a book is about until you finish writing it and, it and you can no longer influence it, right? So you teach it, but it teaches you, right? So, so just to finish this, this little story, we came to understand that a way of framing this, the book, especially in part two of developmental politics, I get into some pretty heady political philosophy, which is certainly not accessible to everybody. But like in my first book, Integral Consciousness, I tried to make part one useful and pragmatic and accessible. And then I was allowed to get more philosophical in part two. But the, this attempt to popularize, to de-intellectualize, to make these ideas accessible to people who may not be interested in political philosophy, that's been a very important goal, both personally and with our organization. So the framing post-progressive is something that, that sort of appeared to us as a way of describing this. From the beginning, I've tried to move away from the color jargon, even though it's sticky for some people. In integral philosophy, many listeners will know that the people talk in colors. It comes from spiral dynamics, and then Ken Wilber had his own version. But the color jargon, in my experience, alienates more people than it attracts. So I've tried to come up with words, not most of them are not from me, but, but words that look like they could have a currency to describe what we're talking about, right? So traditionalism, modernity, progressivism, these are all the, the names for these large-scale forms of culture or worldviews. And so a name, you know, integral is good, but it's got its own baggage and it, it doesn't, if you don't know what it means, although it says, you know, integration, and that's certainly a description, we needed something a little bit more punchy, something that would be mildly polemical but in a way that we could say post-progressive and then say, we're not anti-progressive, right? We're trying to be even more inclusive than progressivism. We're trying to transcend it and include it with something higher. So this framing of post-progressivism and then this idea of cultural intelligence as a handle on uh, integral consciousness, right? So full-blown integral consciousness is one thing, but something that people need to develop into, right? They may get aha moments along the way, but it takes a while to gain that worldview, as you two know. But this idea of cultural intelligence is a way of describing at least a version of this way of seeing that could be used by people anywhere or, you know, at least modernists and progressives. You know, in, in the 1990s, uh, Daniel Goleman popularized emotional intelligence, and that was all of a sudden became viral. Everybody wanted to be emotionally intelligent, and that developed a whole movement. We thought, okay, Cultural intelligence, if you Google it, is more like business manners at this point, you know, as it's defined by the Harvard Business Review. But we wanted to redefine it as this ability to recognize your own worldview, to step outside of your worldview, to recognize the positives and the negatives of the other worldviews in the culture. 
and maybe even recognize the interdependence of our larger cultural ecosystem. So there's a lot more to cultural intelligence, but that's the quick idea to make it, to give it a handle. There's something that people might aspire to, something that business people or leaders might want to recognize as something that they could develop for their skill set. So this attempt to, to put handles on this way of seeing that can relate this to a developmental perspective, right? This, this developmental politics says it all in some ways, because we're trying to help people appreciate that our cultural condition is a result of development, but that further development is not only possible, it's highly likely. So that's probably a good place to stop, but there's obviously lots more to it. Yeah, there's lots more to it, but there was an awful lot in what you said. <laughs> so just to step back and look at the general trajectory of what you described, there's a, I just get this beautiful sense of really a calling at work. There really was a calling, which you have followed now for s- several decades, and of course has grown more, more nuanced and sophisticated and rich, etc., but there really has been a central calling, and I, I'm, I'm just struck by the sheer amount of work that has <laughs> gone into making yourself an instrument for this vision that has been growing within you. And everything from learning political philosophy to learning how to write skillfully, coming up with key words, creating an infrastructure, an institute, your cultural evolution institute, and website, position papers, and, and now this book. It's, it's really beautiful and inspiring. There's so much there, but I'd like to just invite you to give us a sense of, if you were to just focus in on what's, what's the key underlying idea here that you see as, as maybe the core metaphor or idea that lies behind your vision and what you're trying to put out here? Well, the, the further extension of the structure of emergence in the newosphere <laughs> would be one way of talking about it. The idea that we in America have been for over 200 years, in some ways, the leading edge. There are other areas in the world. I mean, I don't want to sound too you know, nationalistic or patriotic centric, but America has created many goods and many ills in the world. And in some ways, I feel as though that the American the trajectory of America in the world, its daemon, if you will, is not done yet. That because we are in some ways the, the nation most responsible for the emergence of modernity, for good and ill, that in some ways it, we could see as a sense of responsibility for ourselves to help overcome you know, the destruction, the destruction of the environment and you know, all of the turmoil that the world is in, that, that we can grow our way out of this, that we can help give birth to a, a new kind of worldview. I mean, just like, you know, certainly this progressive postmodern worldview, the green worldview in some in the color jargon, that this has emerged all over the world, but certainly mostly in the, the Western developed countries. And certainly we could, if we, if we can identify the 60s as at least a part of the origin story of this, that much of the energy of the 60s came about in America and, and so this kind of yeasty evolutionary energy, this frothy edge of emergence is still, I think, accessible to American culture. And so this, this idea that we are working to help bring about a, a new, more inclusive worldview. Another way of framing it is, is this idea of, I mentioned the structure of emergence, right? From the Big Bang to our current system through the cosmological, biological, and 
psychosocial evolution. It's all kind of connected in some ways because something more keeps coming from something less. And so this idea that, that something more is coming, that we, could, we can think about it in terms of this original conception of the structure of emergence, as it was described by the idealist philosophers uh, over 200 years ago. And this is the idea of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, right? This is sort of a, a microcosmic description of, of these steps of emergence. And so we can begin to recognize how progressive postmodernism has very much gained traction in history by pushing off accumulating negative externalities of modernity, right? Is modernity's destruction of the environment, its inequality, its exploitation, its nuclear proliferation. So many negatives about modernity, despite all of the gifts that it's brought us, the, the, where can you go beyond that except to try to fix those problems? And, and, and part of the way that those problems could be fixed, at least at first, is by a rejection. Right? So in the same way that modernity emerged with its own rallying cry during the French Revolution of liberty, equality, and fraternity, we can see a, a similarly similar rallying cry with the idea of turn on, tune in, drop out. Right? Even though it's semi-humorous, the, the idea that we're going to reject modernity, we're going to drop out of it, we're going to turn on to a new set of values and a new identity, this was very attractive and exciting in the fact that it produced this incredible art this, you know, 60s music and other forms of art that, that continue to be vibrant today. You know, my, my 15-year-old and all his friends, they, all they listen to is 60s music pretty much. So the, the, something emerged and it emerged, we can begin to see now through the, the hindsight of, of the, living through it for the past few decades, that it, it, can, it, it really is an antithesis to modernity's thesis. Or maybe we could say the establishment which consisted of traditionalism and modernity in the United States, kind of a cultural truce between those worldviews, at least in the 50s and early 60s. So we see this breaking out of that for good and bad. It creates liberation. It creates a reflection on the negatives of modernity, how modernity is not sustainable by itself, right? How we can't just rest. That's not the end of history. Um, so, so progressive postmodernism has done some important things by helping break the spell of the old establishment. But of course, it inevitably goes too far. And the antithesis, the sailboat has to kind of tack back. And this gives rise as the pathologies of the antithesis begin to emerge, as the utter rejection of Western civilization begins to take its toll on our morale as a civilization, then this presages the potential for the emergence of a synthesis, which kind of brings together the whole spiral or, or is able to create, restore some of the interdependence and mutual respect to, between these worldviews. So that's what I'm working for. That's a description of it, is this cultural synthesis that lies, you know, in, in a post-progressive direction. And one of the things, the points that you made, which I, I thought was fascinating, is that, and there's three play, main players here we're dealing with right now. It's a traditionalist, and I think we all know who that is, the evangelicals and people of that ilk. Then we have the modernists, which are, you know, capitalism and success and, and democracy and all the values and uh, individual rights, et cetera. And then we have the progressive or the postmodern. But one of the points that you made in the book is that just one of the examples, how these things can work together, that modernity has not been able to produce a set of values to control its own negative impulses. Like there's a, there's a market for chopsticks in, in China. So let's chop down all the trees in the Amazon. I mean, I'm using a silly example, but if it's there's money to be made, but the values of the traditionalists 
of honesty, fair play, telling the truth, sacrifice your individual well-being for, for the sake of the good and the, the values of the progressives in the love and the respect of nature as something essential that we emerge from. Both of these values are needed for modernity. And modernity is the next stage that most of the world is going to merge into. But it can use both the values that are created in traditionalists and in the postmodern. It's, it's helpful for this kind of governing power of modernity. And then you get into each one of these levels has its own bedrock, core bedrocks of values that when I read, I go, oh, yeah, well, I agree. I guess I'm a traditionalist. Oh, I, I agree with modernity. I guess I'm a, uh, I'm a modern. And then, when the, of course, I'm a progressive. Somehow it takes away the venom and the poison and the hatred. And we go, wow, all of these people are bringing essential stuff to the party. So how can we begin to connect with each other with compassion and respect from whatever position we are. And I think you're, you're dwelling into these, these, these core values is I've hadn't heard anybody do that before. And I think it's a, it's a tremendous gift that you brought forth. And maybe you'd like to speak a little more about that. Sure. Well, the idea that most of politics, at least the way it appears to the media is concerned about candidates, political parties, political interests, political conflicts, those are all in some ways unavoidable versions of politics, and they can either have healthy expressions or unhealthy expressions. But below all of that, at a level that's harder for people to see, and indeed sometimes harder for social science to penetrate into with any kind of clarity, is this level of what I call bedrock values, where people's sense of identity and their loyalty and their connection to structures of history, which continue to live in the present. Right? These are when we begin to recognize the values, that's where it becomes possible to create new forms of agreement. In other words, in our current political climate, there's very little common ground left. Right? When I give talks, I usually hand out little magnets. And so I get to give people a kinesthetic sense of they, you know, they, they put the two magnets together and they stick like glue, and then they turn them around and they can't put them together. And those same magnetic properties, at least in a similar way, can be seen in the, the natural behavior of values, right? That values have magnetic or energetic properties, which if we can begin to understand those, they can help us appreciate how we can form new agreements and build new forms of culture. But, but just to pull back for a second, I think this idea of, of cultural intelligence, this idea of being able to recognize the bedrock values that exist across the culture that's the first step and the beginning to see how these values could work together, how that it's not just about challenge between these different value systems. There's also an ability to create support, to build agreements about, around interdependence and that ability to build, to recognize where opportunities for agreement, where containers of interdependence can be found. That comes from this practice of cultural intelligence. And that practice has a superficial expression and just recognizing bedrock values as being you know, positive and not just seeing the other, your political opponents only for their negatives. I mean, that's a pretty straightforward way to think about it, but it has much deeper implications as people begin to study and think about this way of seeing. One being recognizing how these events of emergence in history are still alive today and that the, the, the breaking points or the pivot points or the hinges of history continue to animate our political climate. So you mentioned that, you know, the values of modernity 
One of the things, one of the, and maybe this predates Claire Graves, but but where I first learned about the expression of the of this pattern of dialectical development, right? Thesis, antithesis, synthesis, as I said, that this pattern is, is in the structure of emergence itself. And if we look at these worldviews as expressing this structure of emergence, then we begin to recognize how that modernity has a very important set of values, but those values don't stand alone. So liberal values, right? As first articulated by Locke and then as a, a, you know, a memorialized in the United States Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and is generally embraced by liberal modernity throughout its history are, are these values that create the, the individual as sovereign, right? That people aren't just members of their groups, that we should treat every person as an individual, that people have basic rights, you know, rights to free speech, rights, rights to, you know, free assembly, economic freedom to a degree, religious freedom, all of these basic rights of man, as the French called them during the revolution, the rights of man and the citizen, that these in some ways are dependent upon, that they build on and indeed rely on the previous civilizing values of traditionalism. So Claire Graves' genius was that he recognized that the, the structure of emergence alternates between worldviews that are emphasized, put emphasis on community, right, on, on a sacrificing of the self for the larger group. And then, then, then that moves in a dialectical process to more, more of an emphasis on the individual, right? So it's sort of this oscillation between a focus on the whole and a focus on the part which then makes room for, for a return to a focus on a whole, which then makes room for a return to a focus on the part. So they're, they, you know, these aren't absolutistic characterizations. I mean, certainly there are individualistic elements of, of the traditional worldview, right? Communitarian elements of the modernist worldview. But nevertheless, recognizing these patterns is very helpful for the, the, the full perspective of cultural intelligence. And that is recognizing that modernity depended on, it emerged out of and, and continued to rely on the accomplishments, the evolutionary accomplishments of traditional civilization, right? The Judeo-Christian civilization of the Western world, its own success provided a platform for its own transcendence. But that transcendence was still inter interdependent. They still relied on these traditional values. And for many years, as modernity continued to emerge throughout the 20th century, traditionalism supplied the moral system that helped create the civilizing container in which the individualistic values of modernity could flourish. But then as traditionalism lost steam, as it became scientifically and philosophically delegitimized in the minds of many elites, the, the, this truce between traditionalism and modernity could no longer hold, which sort of opened the door for the emergence of a new moral system, a new communitarian worldview, which progressivism is continuing to develop and supply. So now we have, in 2021, this tug of war between these two major communitarian moral systems on either side of modernity, traditionalism pulling for the loyalty of modernists and progressivism pulling for an alternative and seemingly incompatible moral system. And that's why progressivists, most progressives are on the left. Most traditionalists are on the right. But modernity is more divided, probably 60-40 between left and right. And that's because of this historical gravity between these two moral systems. And so understanding this state of play in evolution in our culture, especially in America, that points to the opportunity for another worldview. I don't necessarily want to characterize it as simply a return to the individualistic side. I want to say that the synthesis is able to appreciate for the first time 
through this kind of integrative meta perspective that's just emerging in history now, that it's possible to have both individualistic and communitarian value systems working together and informing each other like two legs. This is sort of the new, the new opportunity we have, is to create a synthesis that can include on their own terms and with their with the full-throated expression of their values, the traditional, the modern, and the progressive all within one cooperative cultural space, this new agreement space. So instead of trying to find common ground, which doesn't exist, right, because the magnet is polarized, we're trying to stake out higher ground, right, a, a more inclusive perspective that can appreciate how all of these worldviews, despite all their negatives, are ultimately interdependent. And this interdependence is a result of their sequence of emergence in history. And they're re requiring the, in order for one to emerge, the previous one has to be successful enough, as I mentioned, to provide a, a platform for its own transcendence. And so progressivism in some ways has now come of age. Its pathologies are more evident than ever before. And this is providing a platform for its transcendence with this post-progressive worldview. Well, there's, there's so much in what you said, Steve, and we could easily spend uh, several sessions just unpacking some of the key ideas. But for those who aren't familiar with your work, let, let me see if I can just pull out some of the central themes here, some of the things that really stood out to me. One is your phrase, we can grow our way out of that, out of this. And that to me seems to capture so much of your vision and your inspiration. The idea that the very conflicts and challenges we're facing can be the fuel for us to grow beyond them. And the pull to grow beyond them, you're pointing to, which is unusual, is the idea of some shared transcendent ideals. And you give a lot of attention in your book to the role of ideals as a kind of magnetizing factor, pulling us forward, particularly the recognition that we underlying the different ideals each cultural phase values, appropriately so, these in turn have, are rooted in still deeper or higher ideals. And that if we can recognize those, then we begin to appreciate that actually we share these and can move towards, hopefully move towards these out of a shared attraction. And then your idea of cultural intelligence, the recognition that, that, we can grow in our appreciation of, of culture and its possibilities. And that's a, I think that's a really key, a beautiful idea. As you said, emotional intelligence really took off and illuminated a whole sphere of being and capacities that really weren't appreciated before. Cultural intelligence, yeah, indeed, maybe it can have the same role for culture and politics. That would be, that would be absolutely wonderful. Your aspiration, searching for recognizing these transcendent ideals and thereby recognizing our commonality. I mean, those are just some of the themes that stuck out to me, and I just wanted to name them because there's so much in what you say, and you're just a fountain of ideas, which I love, but I don't want others to get lost. I've, I've had, the, had the benefit of reading your book a couple of times. Thanks. Yeah, so. Please. So people, I had his online Zoom class, you know, in the first quarter of 2021. And one of the questions that kept coming up is how can we overcome hyperpolarization when people now have their own facts, right? We don't have a common estimate of what's true. This seemed to be a non-starter for any kind of political reconciliation or, or bipartisan cooperation. And 
I tried to explain that part of the reason that we don't have a common idea of truth, or the reason that that's kind of been fragmented, is that we no longer have a common ideal of the good, right? The good, the true, and the beautiful are related, as I talk about in the book. So this idea of a common good, it used to be there were at least two versions of the American dream, the modernist version, which is about upward mobility and personal success. And then the, the more traditional expression of that, which is about America as a moral example of democracy and self-governance for the world. And although not everyone held to those ideals, they did sort of hold the society together with a, a rough conception of a transcendent ideal or the American dream. And of course, as those forms of ideal or transcendence have, as progressivism has, in a sense, disrupted those or called those into question or disputed those, that is at least one of the forces that's fragmenting our, our social solidarity, right? Not that America has ever been thoroughly, been in thorough solidarity, but, it, but certainly our sense of collective identity has been severely disrupted. And again, this has created all kinds of problems and it's bad in some ways, but it also, if we understand evolution, presages the opportunity for further growth, right? So Herbert Spencer, even before Darwin, defined evolution as differentiation leading to a higher level of integration. So that's what we're working on. But to come back to this idea of, of transcendence as the key to reclaiming a sense of common good, or at least a coherent set of common goods that maybe not you know, is agreeable to everyone, but that could help restore at least a modicum of unity necessary for a functional democracy. I would say that I've been influenced there by the work of Charles Taylor, right? The eminent philosopher. He talks a lot about transcendence and he uses it as kind of an umbrella term. The idea that, that transcendence is somewhat specific to each person, it's their sense of a higher purpose or a higher goal or something that is in their life that's more important than themselves, something that they may be willing to sacrifice their self-interest for. And according to Taylor, secular modernity has lost its connection to the horizon of transcendence. Now, Taylor doesn't really identify this progressive postmodern worldview. He's not a developmentalist in that sense. But he does provide us this way of thinking about this idea of something higher, which he calls transcendence, which can have an expression. It has a traditional expression in religious notions of God's will. It has an expression in modernity as this sense of, of progress, building a civilization that meets everybody's needs. I mean, there, there are transcendent ideals within modernity. And then, of course, with the emergence of progressivism, that is its own vision of transcendence, which is planetary healing, right? Creating a world that works for everyone, you know, compensating the victims of modernity's negative externalities, you know, helping the environment, helping the marginalized. So, so each one is, is in some ways working with their own vision of something higher or some higher purpose. And as I argue at length in the book, it's hard to just kind of summarize it or, or talk about it in, in terms that don't carry with them the argument that leads up to it. But this idea that we live in this amazing universe of becoming, that we are developing, that we're continuing to develop, and that we are each agents of evolution, right? We're agents of the evolution of our own consciousness. We can be agents of cultural evolution. And that we, when we, we come to understand evolution more thoroughly, we can begin to appreciate how the opportunities for evolution that lie in front of us are now beginning to become more possible than ever before. So this new ideal of transcendence is this idea of ongoing cultural evolution within the newosphere on planet Earth. Now, let me say that, that I mentioned earlier this idea of common ground and higher ground. 
The idea that cultural evolution could become a transcendent ideal for these other worldviews or unite America, that's not what I'm positing. I don't think that's possible in the same way they don't think there's any common ground left because centrism, which you know used to be you know in the center of modernity itself, as modernity has been transcended by the progressive worldview, there's no center anymore. It's, it can no longer contain the whole, so it can't be the center. So this idea of higher ground is we're we're creating this new political agreement space, this new cultural place where people can begin to appreciate that this polarity that can be seen in almost every human polity, it keeps reappearing in almost every form of government, some version of what I'm describing is the prime political polarity, which is those who are oriented towards fixing what's wrong and those who are more oriented towards preserving what's right. Now, of course, these flip, right? Sometimes the right is more concerned with fixing what's wrong or the left is more concerned with preserving what's right. But in general, the right and the left, I mean, I don't just mean the American right or left. We see this right, some version of the right left in almost every human large-scale organization is that these, this polarity is indestructible. It keeps reappearing, this preserving what's right and fixing what's wrong. So now that we can no longer find a relationship of challenge and support within modernity for that existential polarity, we can begin to re-establish an agreement space, or I shouldn't say re-establish, or establish anew, a place where people recognize that this, this polarity is permanent, that one side can't vanquish the other, and that if we want to make progress, we need to create this, this new culture, this post-progressive culture, where people try to embody this left and right within themselves. Right, that, that they may be more oriented naturally toward fixing what's wrong or the opposite, more preserving what's right. But the idea that, that you, your ability to forward the interests of the poll that you prefer are partially dependent on your ability to recognize the permanent interdependence of the poll you oppose. So if you're interested in fixing what's wrong, the insight of this permanent polarity in our political consciousness helps you appreciate that you've got to integrate some healthy concerns for preserving what's right. And so the recreating the polarity within our own within our own political perspective, within our own political discourse, within our own cultural framework, this is what then allows within that kind of cultural agreement space, we could begin to recognize the ongoing evolution of consciousness and culture as a kind of transcendent purpose, which could create or supply a new American dream, at least in this new culture. Steve, I think that's, a, that's such a powerful insight. I had gone from one end to the polarity of the other as far as wanting to fix everything and tear it all down almost. Just God, Western civilization, disaster, is destroying the planet, et cetera, to an appreciation of it. I feel now that I have both of those drives almost equal. Great passion for both, you know, for honoring what's good and wanting to fix what's broke. So maybe that's part of moving toward this, this understanding. Hey, brothers and sisters. What you just listened to was just part one of a two-part conversation. So stay tuned, keep coming back, listen to Steve and listen to us because this is stuff we all need to be working on, becoming the answers of the questions that need to be asked at this time. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, 
and the deep transformation kingdom.